Hi guys, Catherine here. In case you're wondering, yes, I am still recording from my bedroom closet. This season, we've been catching up with chefs and restaurant owners about what reopening in Boston has meant for them and finding out how we can show our love and support to these small businesses that play such a vital role in our community. I also wanted to remind you to keep your eye on thefoodlens.com. We have patio guides and takeout guides, so whether you're craving pizza or fried chicken or sushi, we have got you covered. On today's episode, I'm going to be chatting with Ellie Tiglau of Tanam in Somerville, and I'm excited to hear how things are going over at Bow Market, where they're located. They have a very small space and have these incredibly intimate dinners where they employ storytelling with something called narrative cuisine. So I want to know how they're able to do that, um, given you know the new reopening guidelines, and hear kind of what her plans are for the next few months. After the interview with Ellie, stay tuned to hear from Margot Mazur from Rebel Rebel and Wild Child in Somerville. It's the first in a series of short conversations we're having with folks in the restaurant industry about how their personal and professional lives have changed because of the pandemic. Before we get started, I just want to take a minute and talk about 90 plus sellers. I don't know about you, but over the last several months, the pop of a wine cork at the end of a long day sounds especially sweet. 90 Plus Cellars is a Boston-based wine company, and you'll find their wines in retail shops all over New England. They work with highly rated wineries from around the world to bring you great value. Yes, you can uncork that delicious wine for under $10. But I especially love their reserve collection. It hits that $15 to $20 sweet spot. These wines are a step up in quality and come from some of the world's greatest wine regions. I love that you can browse by region on 90plussellers.com. And I love to try wines from Sancerre or the Russian River Valley. They have wine from all over the world. You can also search by varietal, whether it's Sauvignon Blanc or Pinot Noir that you're craving. Their wines are available in stores across Massachusetts and New England, but I'm always looking for ways to cut down on shopping trips these days. So buying wine online at 90plussellers.com couldn't be more convenient. They also have a quarterly wine club, which is obviously a great deal, and you never pay for shipping. Is there anything better than stocking up on your favorite wine from your couch? Get 10% off your order with promo code THEFOODLENS at checkout. That's 90plussellers.com. Check out our show notes for more info. Okay, I'm here today with Ellie Tiglau from Tanam. Ellie, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Catherine. So Ellie, why don't we get started by um, you explaining a little bit more about your restaurant um, and the kind of experience that you guys are looking to create because it's such a different and unique concept from, you know, how a lot of people are used to dining. Sure. Um, I guess um, there's a couple of different things that we do at Tanam, but we're really focused on the narrative of food and its power to be able to uh, connect people. Um, we pre-COVID... Uh, had one 10-seat table uh, at which strangers would all come to eat together, um, and we only sat 10 people at a time, and they would uh, engage with us in a sort of conversation that was kind of led by a narrative we presented over five courses. Uh, We also do something called Kamayan, which is um, a representation of something more traditional uh, in Filipino cuisine, uh, which is the way of eating on banana leaf. Um, and we have lots of different components on it. And it's kind of a good, I think, uh, Filipino food 101 if you've never had it, or just a really great way to have the food if you've been missing it for a while. Yeah, I was lucky enough to have the banana leaf um, meal. And it was, I'm still thinking about it. I mean, it was 
so if it felt like such a generous feast you have you know like the rice and the milkfish and a whole lobster and these beautiful mussels and a, and a spicy sauce and it was just it was such a great feast and, you know, I was with someone that I was comfortable kind of eating with our hands and, and sharing that experience. And I'm sure in non-COVID times, it's a very special experience to share with other people. Um, but as far as the narrative cuisine, could you just uh, sort of unpack what that looks like for people who might not fully understand, you know, what that means? Yeah, I think what people will notice about um, narrative uh, what we do is that um, it's not a performance. Um, it's not meant to be a show that you go to a dinner and a show sort of situation. Um, what we do is uh, five courses where that are tied to a narrative and we walk you through that narrative and provide uh, basically invitations to dialogue. Um, and the food that we're doing um, you know, we're explicit about calling what we do as a restaurant narrative cuisine because we don't want to tie ourselves to um, anyone's particular background. Um, and so what we present over the course of the year, last year we did nine different stories basically, um, is something that's a collaboration between um, us uh, the chef, oftentimes that could be me. Um, we also have another chef at Tanam um, whose name is Seisha um, and uh, artists who might come in and want to engage in that same dialogue. So it's pretty multi-layered. Um, it also, by being by virtue of it being a very intimate space that is specifically designed to help people focus on what's right in front of them and on each other, um, it allows for a certain a certain type of intimacy that you're not going to find um, in other spaces. I know that obviously a five course dinner, there's, there's a lot there, but could you give me an example of the kind of stories that you're telling or even just, you know, one dish? Yeah. Um, let me think. Um, so uh, for example, um, we, uh, the last menu that we did before closing um, was a menu with Chef Seisha, um, she presented her family's story of migrating from Alabama to Massachusetts as part of the Great Migration that happened in the 20th century. Um, and just, you know, really touching on some um, really heartwarming things, but also really serious topics, um, really uh, engaging people um, with uh, topics as loaded as slavery, um, but also talking about, you know, um, just the importance of the family dinner. Um, so, um, the range of what we're doing in one single dinner can vary drastically. Um, we're also right now, um, for the Kamayan, um, providing a dish that does have a bit of story to it. Um, it's a soup, um, that is meant to, um, invoke healing, um, thinking about, um, what we go to when um, we're in need of some sort of comfort um, and how important it is when, how important it is to say yes to that when um, we're all struggling to do something better than what we've had, uh, to make something better than what we've had previously. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be able to talk to Seisha pretty briefly about this, but it was interesting. She, and please correct me because this was a little while ago and I might get it a little bit wrong, but she was talking about like particular ingredients. I think she was talking about sweet potato and, you know, 
how she utilized the sweet potato in the dish and how that tied back to her, you know, ancestors' experience with slavery. And I think she even had a particular story about carrying that ingredient, you know, with them on the migration. And, you know, it just really um, kind of illuminated for me what what you were talking about with narrative cuisine and how it is so multi-layered and how there's there are sad stories, of course, and stories of exploitation, but also you know, stories of family and, um, home and, and all of that. And, uh, I'm curious how you guys decide what stories to tell and who kind of executes the whole, the whole vision. Yeah. Um, so essentially how we think about it, um, who we engage with, um, what we're really interested in is the stories that aren't being told in other places. Um, a lot of people, um, as particularly people coming from communities of color or uh, marginalized communities um, don't often find a voice in the mainstream, um, particularly in, in food. Um, and so it's a place that we see the opportunity to use the big me- megaphone that we've been given as chefs to say something different. And how did these two worlds kind of collide for you as someone who, you know, was a cook and a chef, um, but then also you know, having this desire to tell stories and, and bring in marginalized voices. Yeah. Um, I will say first off that I'm not classically trained. I didn't go to school. Um, I did grow up in in the kitchen. My dad's a chef um, and his mother had a restaurant in the Philippines before him. So um, despite their best efforts, I ended up in the family business. Um, I'm a neuroscientist by training, actually. And so um, all that to say, I... I have always had food as part of my background, and I have seen it, um, the power of it to break down walls or at least give people one common shared thing that they can um, engage over. And um, I use that frequently without really thinking about it um, because I used to host a lot of dinner parties as a scientist. Um, But when I left that and I didn't have an idea of what to do next, um, I started a pop-up with my brother um, and... It was a pretty simple aim. It was just that I missed my food. I didn't see my food represented anywhere um, close to here. I think the closest I would have to go to to have something like what I ate at home would be to go to New York. Um, and so I uh, just started doing it out of a desire to have it and to share it if there was anybody willing to um, have it. And over time, um, we developed a few different ways of doing it. And one series that I developed was called uh, Less Than 10. And all that was a reference to was how many people could sit at the table. Um, And I also have a background in art and art history. That's actually what I went to undergrad for um, and kind of wove in that idea of storytelling um, into food uh, with that series. So we have to back up a little bit because you said you're a neuroscientist by training. My husband is a cancer um, researcher. He's a postdoc at MIT. So I know not from doing it myself, but from living with a scientist, the intense path that that is and the idea that you would go through training to become a scientist and choose something else. Uh, Like, can you dig into that a little bit and and tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I felt very dedicated to my path as a neuroscientist. I, when I try and make sense of it now, you know, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. I I chose neuroscience because at the time of my studies, I felt like it was a place where uh, interesting intersections were happening between uh, fields that weren't considered to be 
very adjacent or wouldn't make sense together. And I really liked that idea. I've always felt like the most interesting things are happening at those intersections of the uncommon or the unexpected uh, bringing together of different elements. And so um, I think that's always been with me. Um, and in choosing this path to go into food, I it was not a conscious one, really. I feel like um, I responded to an intuition or just a desire to just see this happen at least once without any expectation of what was going to happen next. Um, and this first pop-up that we had, um, it was actually something I had in mind because I know the guys who opened Aeronaut, um, and this was 2014. Um, my brother was coming to visit. I had just quit. Um, had no idea what I was going to do, but I knew that I love to cook with my brother. I knew that if we made food for people, um, maybe people would come. And if not, there would be a lot of amazing leftovers. So we put the call out. Uh, we hoped for 20 people. We ended up with 28 people and ended up doing this um, multi-course pop-up in the middle of the Aeronaut um, Brewery, packed, um, and just seeing and witnessing everyone um, kind of their curiosity about what we were doing and just seeing something that they weren't expecting at all at this brewery. Um, and so um, it just kind of turned into this thing where I was thinking, okay, we'll do one more. It sounds like people still want to do it. Let's keep going. Um, and eventually um, when I thought about it, the the possibility of having a restaurant, um, I wanted to think of it as um, really something that was more of like a food and art space to kind of disconnect it from our understanding of how restaurants work to provide more of a a space that had more layers to it that was more of an experience. We're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors and we'll be right back. With the holidays coming up, I wanted to take a minute and talk to you guys about Curdbox. So Curdbox is this amazing monthly cheese subscription. It's from the owners of Curds & Co, which is an incredible Brookline cheese shop. Matt and Jen, the owners, have a couple of cheese shops in Boston and they are fantastic people with great taste. So these curd boxes, they feed enough for two to three for dinner because sometimes, I mean, let's be real, we just want to eat cheese for dinner or six to eight for nibbling. And they come with three different artisanal cheeses. They have some accoutrements, little specialty food snacks, and they also come with a dedicated Spotify playlist and they have a Curdcast podcast. They also throw in some wine pairing cards so you know exactly what to sip with your cheese. So check out curdbox.com and use the promo code FOODLENS at checkout for $10 off your first order. That's curdbox.com and use the promo code FOODLENS for $10 off your first order. It's so interesting. I'm hearing a lot of echoes or similarities between the story, uh, the story of Celeste and Maria and Juan Ma and, you know, their backgrounds and how they really came to it as kind of this project and this community space. And, you know, it's really exciting. I've lived in Somerville for 13 years and it's really exciting to see these new, um, you know, innovative restaurants, food projects, whatever you want to call them, pop up. Um, but it sounds like this has been a pretty organic process and it was like, okay, this thing led to the next thing. This thing is working. Now, COVID threw a big wrench in all of that, yet here you are reopening, you know, sort of committing yourself, it seems like, to making it work. So can you tell me about, you know, what the last six months have been like for you and, and how it's 
you know, affected you as a business owner? Yeah. Um, I have been paying a lot of attention to the news and how COVID has been impacting restaurants. I know what's coming for the winter, what sort of worries we have. I also, um, despite all that, feel that the time that we took to really formulate a plan was very necessary for our survival, just to make sure that we weren't reacting um, just out of fear um, and to give us space to rest. Um, You know, as you probably know, and honestly, just like science, um, there's not a lot of room for that. And we were always working. We we wanted to keep um, responding to the really great things that people were saying and continue to welcome people in our doors. But once COVID hit, um, we just took a couple weeks to just let people rest. Um, we made that decision together to close a restaurant before there was a the order to stay in place. And um, I'm really thankful for that. I think it gave us some, some perspective around what was really important to us. Um, we know we really like what we're doing. Is there something more that that we can do or something that we can shift to make this um, closer to our vision. Um, And it also gave us time to think about something outside of that idea of takeout. And so um, I hope we're lucky with uh, the weather this year. Um, But I know um, as part of Bow Market, which is this larger um, sort of collection of restaurants and places to get beverages and shops. Um, we have a hope to try and get it, get through the winter um, with outdoor, something outdoors. Um, so, um, you know, right now we're having people on the patio um, for Kamayan, which is something that um, took us some time to really reimagine and still kind of keep the ethos of. And um, we are... Um, going to go along with our plan to continue. Um, We're planning an a la carte menu, actually. Um, So that will be a little different um, and will include stories with uh, the items. Um, And then um, we also want to try something a little different from what other people are doing. Instead of heaters, uh, we're going to try seat warmers. I know it's kind of these little details are kind of funny to even share, um, but I feel like people who are interested in eating want to know these sorts of things. Yeah, <laughs> no, the logistics of it are very important. Um, I want to go back a little bit to talking about not feeling guilty about rest because, I mean, just personally, that resonates with me as a business owner and, you know, the constant need, you know, there's like the real financial pressures of life, but then, you know, the culture of just work, work, work. And I think, my experience aside, the restaurant industry is, you know, that's been such a, there's been such a glorification of that. Uh, obviously, you guys buck a lot of trends um, when it comes to restaurants, but can you tell me a little bit about um, your perspective on that and what that looks like with your staff and how you run your restaurant? Yeah. So um, it probably helps to uh, folks to know that um, we also have a pretty different sort of business uh, structure. We're a worker cooperative, so that means all of the full-time uh, employees at Tanam are also owners. Um, it means, um, you know, we're all working there together, and 
we're also making decisions together. And so um, when I think about rest, it's always been the case for us that if anyone ever needs a day, that is totally fine. We can make it work. Um, but it also means um, that we decide together um, kind of from the perspective as of somebody who is a working person, um, what is the right thing for me? I, I talk about this sometimes when people ask about the beginning of Tanam. Um, it took us two years to start or to do the financial projections because we started with the basic question of how do we run a restaurant that truly takes care of its people? Um, and part of that um, belongs or starts with the idea that labor is a is is not a variable cost. Um, we do we are responsible to the people that we bring in to make sure uh, that they can um, live their lives um, and feel stable. And so um, that if if we weren't able to accomplish that on a basic level, um, it didn't feel worth it to continue, no matter how interesting the idea was. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think a lot of people are buying are you know, have some buy-in for that whole ethos. I think, you know, of course the food is delicious or you don't have a restaurant, but I don't think that's the only reason why most people are choosing to dine with you. Um, what does Tanam mean? I don't think I asked you right out of the gate. What is the name? Oh, mean? that's great. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Tanam means cultivation or rooting or planting. Um, and I guess for some background around the name, um, a few years ago, uh, a an activist named Grace Lee Boggs had passed away. And after she passed away, there was a lot of sharing of the things that she'd said. And one thing that she said was, the most radical thing I ever did was stay put. And that was very impactful for me. Um, I thought about how many people think about Boston and how they come in and out of Boston and my experience with um, the need to really be persistent and consistent um, when in community community organizing, especially in the city, because of that reason. And so um, it felt like a like a me saying yes to Boston. Like, if you will have me, I will be here as long as you want. Um, this is me rooting into Boston. Um, and this is me trying to grow something here. Awesome. My my last question, Ellie, is a little bit a little bit different from the restaurants. I'm curious, during COVID, everyone's been kind of cooking more at home. Um, and a lot of us are not familiar with Filipino food. Have you been cooking Filipino food at home or other food? And can you share a little bit about something that you've been making that's been keeping you nourished? Um, yeah, I um, I have mostly been making stews. So um, Filipinos eat a lot of stews, uh, no matter what the weather looks like, obviously. It's a pretty tropical place. Um and um, there's one that always makes me feel very nostalgic and one that I actually consider to be, if there were to be a national dish of the Philippines, it would be this one. Um, it's called sinigang. It's a, it's a sour stew, actually. Um, and you can use whatever's around you to sour it um, in terms of plant plants or um, uh, fruits. And so... Um, the one that is most commonly known is using sour tamarind. And um, it's an interesting one. I think it's really delicious. Um, well, I'm looking forward to trying it. I hope that you'll bring it to Tanam and maybe on that a la carte menu and maybe 
I can just pop in and try it <laughs> as a neighbor. Um, that sounds good. Uh, if I can find a reservation because it's a, it's a hot table. Um, thank you so much, Ellie. I really appreciate uh, you coming in and chatting with us. And I just wish you all the best um, with the restaurant and your whole team, you know, headed into the winter. And we should definitely stay in touch. Yes, definitely. Thanks so much, Catherine. My name is Margot, Margot Mazur. Um, I am the beverage director at Wild Child in Somerville at Bow Market. And I also work at Rebel Rebel, where I'm a sommelier. Working during a pandemic has been tricky. Before the pandemic, I was able to give people tastes of wine, right? I was able to say, oh, hey, you're looking at this, you're looking for this, let me give you something to try, you're gonna love it, right? Well, we can't do that at all, right? Because we're not supposed to um, pour wine directly into folks' glasses and have them try it and then pour something again. So that's something that is out. I can't do tastings, right, at my wine shop. So that has been really tough. But my very favorite part about being a sommelier is having you tell me what you're looking for. You saying, hey, you know what? I felt like garbage today. I want a wine that will make me feel hope and joy and make me happy or I'm making a I don't know risotto at home and I want a wine to pair with that or oh my god my mother-in-law is over and I need a wine that she's gonna like and I'm gonna like right all of those situations bring me into your life a little bit and that is so dreamy and it makes me so happy and it's the very very best and luckily it has translated well into this world because you can still come into the shop and talk to me Foodlands podcast is hosted by Catherine Smart and produced by Isaac Price Slade. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and share the show with friends and family. Your help means so much to us. And as always, check out thefoodlands.com for the best restaurants and bars in Boston.